Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Boston Sanctuary since 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the Boston metropolitan area and beyond. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. We're located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets in downtown Boston, Massachusetts. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. Jarvis Masters is a prisoner on death row at San Quentin. Jarvis is in his cell, reading by the light of the television. He has the sound turned down. Every once in a while, he glances up at the screen, sees something that piques his curiosity, and calls the other prisoners on his cell block to find out what's happening. The first time someone yells back, it's the Ku Klux Klan, Jarvis, and they're all yelling and complaining and blaming who they always blame. About half an hour later, he yells again, hey, what's happening now? And someone yells back, Oh, that's the Greenpeace folks. They're demonstrating about the rivers being polluted and, you know, the trees being cut down and the animals being hurt and the earth being destroyed. And, right, and um, later still, Jarvis calls out again. And for the last time that evening, someone yells back, Oh, Jarvis, that's the U.S. Senate. And that guy who's up there talking right now, he's blaming the guys on the other side for all the financial mess. Jarvis starts laughing, and he calls down, Hey, guys, I learned something tonight. Sometimes they're wearing Klan sheets. Sometimes they're wearing Greenpeace t-shirts. Sometimes they're wearing suits. And they all have the same angry faces. The same angry faces. American Buddhist nun Pema Chidron is speaking. A a fundamentalist mind is a mind that has gone rigid, she says. First the heart closes, then the mind calcifies into a certain perspective. Then we can justify our hatred of another human being because of what they represent and what they say and what they do. The next time you get angry, she says, check out your righteous indignation. Check out the fundamentalist mind that supports your hatred of that politician, that head of a big company, that individual who has harmed you or someone you love. If we look back at history or we look at any place in the world where religious groups or ethnic groups or racial groups or political groups are killing each other or families have been feuding for years and years, we can see, because we're not particularly invested in their argument, we can see that there will never be peace. There will never be peace until somebody softens what is rigid in their heart. This is it, beginning, middle, and end, until we hold up a mirror and take a good, hard look at our own righteousness and fundamentalism. Nothing will ever change until we deeply examine the cause and effect 
chain reaction that starts with shuttering our minds and hardening our hearts. The war. The war in the world and the war within will not stop. War begins in our hearts. War ends and peace begins in our hearts. Have you ever had someone die whom you really disliked? Someone really difficult, someone who betrayed you, maybe an enemy? Do you remember what it felt like when they died? I'm going to step out onto the high wire of spiritual inquiry without a net now. This is the afflicting the comfortable part of the sermon, and I'm going to use myself as an example. So these are the two questions for our reflection. What died when they died? And what lived on? So here's my story. I adopted my two younger daughters in Peru. And when they were babies, I did a lot of public speaking and advocacy work about adoption. Early on, a very unhappy woman showed up at one of these gigs. And when I agreed to sit and speak with her afterward, she told me that she would have been happy if only she had not been adopted. From that day forward, she made it her personal mission, as she said it, to stop me. She began to stalk me. When I was flown to San Francisco, she spent good money on a ticket and flew all that way to show up to disrupt my talk, but never made it past the conference registration desk. After witnessing the all-female security force in action, I'll admit to you it was thrilling, I remember feeling bad about that scene. Over time, though, I began to despair. She trailed me and subsequently parked outside my house waiting for me to get home each night. The details aren't important. Stalkers seem to have all graduated from the same stalking school. But her behavior escalated and became more erratic and more threatening. Mostly, I was too mad to be scared. Months later, one Sunday afternoon, I was the last person to leave here, and I headed out to the alley to drive home. And at the time, there were these dense bushes planted against the church foundation. She emerged from behind a bush and made a gesture as if she had a gun in her hand. Time slowed down. We just stood there, looking at each other in the bright sunlight. It was the first time we had been face to face since that long ago meeting. Her hand was empty. She looked defeated, exhausted. All the violence and defiance had gone out of her. 
and she mumbled, Sorry, I didn't mean to scare you, and walked away. My knees felt weak. Not long afterward, a Provincetown parishioner called me here to say that she had taken her own life. I remember I didn't even feel relief. I just felt sad. I felt sad for her misguided mission, sad that she was so utterly alone with her madness, sad that she had lived on a steady diet of hatred until it sickened her, poisoned her, killed her. And what's really amazing to me today is that I can remember the name of the person who called to say that she died, but I can't even remember her name. And here's to the point. What did it do to me, to my soul, to experience the erosion of my compassion until slowly, almost imperceptibly, it was replaced by powerlessness, righteousness, anger, and fear. Shantideva, the great 8th century Indian Buddhist scholar, asked if these ancient, long-lived patterns, these ways of thinking that are the wellspring only of unceasing woe, that lead to our own suffering as well as the suffering of others, if these ways of being still find their lodging safe within our hearts, how can peace come to this world? And he goes on to say that even after the enemies are all dead, the alliances have shifted, the nations have fallen, even then, the impact of our negativity and hatred is very long-lived. We look into the mirror to find that we have become carriers of that disease. So how can we begin to change that? In the face of an incoming hit, the spiritual practice is not to rush to the last time we were hurt and circle the wagons and fuel that wound, throwing wood on the bonfire of our anger and self-righteousness. Instead, determining to free ourselves from the habit of cleaving to the fundamentalism of a closed mind and a hard heart, we summon the courage to break the habit to change our minds and experience a true change of heart. The real work of the peacemaker, as Pema Chedron says, is to find the soft spot and stay there, cultivating the seeds of peace. I don't know how this would have looked with my stalker, but it's worth the spiritual inquiry.
what would it look like in your life? On a global scale, His Holiness the Dalai Lama refers to the Chinese government as my friends, the enemy. I'm going to close with a story I've told before, the story of a vet determined to stop the war within. He writes, I served as a field medical corpsman with the Marine Corps ground forces in the early days of the war in the mountainous provinces on the border of what was then North and South Vietnam. Our casualty rates were high, as were those of the villagers we treated when circumstances permitted. When I attended my first meditation retreat, it had been eight years since my return. At least twice a week for all those years, I had sustained the same recurring nightmares common to many combat veterans, dreaming that I was back there facing the same dangers, witnessing the same incalculable suffering, waking, suddenly alert, sweating, scared. At the retreat, the nightmares did not occur during sleep. They filled my mind's eye during the day, during seated meditation, during walking meditation, at meals. Horrific wartime flashbacks were superimposed over a quiet redwood grove at the retreat center. Sleepy students in the dormitory were superimposed over a makeshift morgue on the DMZ. As I relived these memories as a 30-year-old spiritual seeker, what I came to say was that for the first time, I was also enduring the full emotional impact of experiences that, as a 20-year-old medic, I had simply been unprepared to withstand. I began to realize that my mind was gradually yielding up memories so terrifying, so life-denying and so spiritually eroding that I had ceased to be consciously aware that I was still carrying them around. I was, in short, beginning to undergo a profound catharsis by openly facing that which I had most feared and therefore most strongly suppressed. At the retreat, I was also plagued by a more current fear that Having released the inner demons of war, I would be unable to control them, that they would now rule my days as well as my nights. But what I experienced instead was just the opposite. The visions of slain friends and dead children gave way to other half-remembered scenes from that time and place. The entrancing, intense beauty of a jungle forest, a thousand different shades of green, a fragrant breeze blowing over beaches so white and dazzling they seemed carpeted by diamonds. For the first time, what also arose at the retreat was a deep sense of compassion for my past and present self. Compassion for the idealistic would-be young physician forced to witness the unspeakable obscenities of which humankind is capable and for the haunted veteran who could not let go of the memories he could not acknowledge he carried. Since that first retreat, the compassion has stayed with me. 
through practice, it has grown to sometimes encompass those around me as well. And while the memories have also stayed with me, the nightmares have not. The last of the sweating screams happened in silence, fully awake, somewhere in Northern California, decades ago. Beloved spiritual companions, when we turn off the sound and look up, we too will see that all the angry faces are the same, including our own. But when we openly face that which we most fear, we release the inner demons of war. The war that starts when we shudder our minds, war in the world and the war within will not stop until we choose to change our minds and experience a true change of heart. War begins in our hearts. War ends and peace begins in our hearts. May war end. May peace begin. Let it begin with us. <laughs>